Radioland podcast Bill and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today we're talking with Janet Sarbanes, a wonderful writer who lives here in LA and has a new book called The Protester Has Been Released. She does. I really love this book, actually. I thought it was very, very funny and sharp about a lot of different political issues. While I was reading it over the weekend, I was really excited to talk to her. Yeah, yeah, me too. I wrote ha-ha in the margin (laughs) a number of times, which I don't always do that. I didn't, but I read it on the airplane, um, and I loved it. It's hard to laugh on the airplane. It is hard to laugh. You're a little self-conscious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get to the interview. Here today with Janet Sarbanes. Janet Sarbanes is a writer and a professor in the MFA Creative Writing Program and the Masters of Aesthetics and Politics Program at the California Institute of the Arts. Her fiction has appeared in journals such as Black Clock, PQ, Entropy, and North Dakota Quarterly. She is the author of two collections of short stories, Army of One, which was published by Otis Books, and The Protester Has Been Released, which was just published this year by CNR Press. Thanks so much for being here today, Janet. Thank you for having me. We're thinking we could start off by having you read a little from your new book. Okay. I'm going to read from the first story, which is called Laika Hears the Music of the Spheres. It's over now, the terrible heat. The terrible heat and the horrible noise have passed. I can hear my heart beating fast, then not so fast. Soon he will come to let me out. This is my favorite time when all is still and quiet and he is coming. I have to sit like this a lot. Sometimes they make me sit for days, but I like to sit. I listen to my breath moving in and out and forget that I'm hungry or hot or thirsty, that I can't stand or turn around. I forget about him even, my longing for him, though it was he who taught me how to find this peace. But something's different today. Though my heart has calmed, I feel strange, strange and light. Even though I can't move trapped as I am between two pillows in my suit, still I'm rising. If I weren't so firmly tethered, I might float away. Everything else is the same as always, but this is different. Something's wrong. He hasn't come to let me out. I search my memory for clues. I think it was yesterday morning, or perhaps the day before, that he took down the leash and opened the cage. Walk? Walk? he asked, in that simple way of his. Yes, of course, I responded happily. Shall we go somewhere special, like the beach? But he ignored my question, or perhaps he simply didn't understand. After all this time, I know so many of his words, and he knows so few of mine. We did go to the beach, down to the great water, but he wouldn't let me go in, only stand at the edge and smell the salt. There were many gorgeous smells on the beach that day, even some dead things, but he wouldn't let me near them. Sit, Laika, he said, and I sat. He stroked my head with his heavy hand, 
looking out at the great water. I was happy as I always am sitting next to him. No matter what I have to endure, when he comes to let me out again, I'm happy. He tried to tell me something, but they weren't the words I know. They were the words they use when talking across their desks or walking down the corridors. The only one I recognized was Limonchik, the name no other calls me. Limonchik, he kept saying over and over, putting that word up against the other ones as if it could somehow make them mean something to me or make me mean something to those words. Whatever he was saying, it caused warm water to stream from his eyes and his body to jerk and tremble. Oh, come on, it can't be that bad, I said to him. He laughed and took hold of the paw I had proffered, but the water continued to leak from his eyes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That story ends up being devastating, I think. Mm. It's really heartbreaking, especially as a proud owner and mom, I guess, a parent, <laughs> parent of a dog. Yeah. It's very heartbreaking. Yeah. Her story is heartbreaking. Like us. So maybe you could tell us what the process of that story in a nutshell was. Sure. I actually was at the Museum of Jurassic Technology and they had a Emmy Beers does dog portraits and they had a display of Soviet dog portraits that she had done. And I was really captivated by them. And so I looked up this whole phenomenon of the Soviet space dogs and I discovered Laika and Laika's story. So she was sent into orbit in 1957. It was part of the space race between Russia and the U.S. And they were trying to test to see if, you know, a human could go into orbit. So she was the first living creature who did it. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> as you know from the story, it was a race. So they had to do it before they figured out a way to get her back. So she basically went into space and she was never going to come back. Mm -hmm. And there are different sort of theories about what happened to her, whether she kind of died of just starvation and um, and thirst, which is what I, the tact I took in the story, or if she just burned up when she went through the atmosphere. And that's what they think is more probable now. At the time, they thought it was the other. But then she orbited the Earth for like five months, her capsule, Sputnik 2. So it was this reminder, in a sense, of this act of, what I saw as an act of betrayal. I mean, the scientists, the Russian scientists were very devoted to their dogs, and the sort of head scientist on her mission in the 80s confessed that he didn't think they got enough information from it to justify sending her up there without being mm -hmm. able to get her back. And I wanted to kind of account for that, but I also wanted to tell it from Laika's point of view and how, how she must have experienced it as an act of betrayal. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dogs think when we leave in the morning is an act of betrayal, right? <laughs> Let alone when they're shot up into orbit. But it was also to get at this larger issue of, in a sense, you know, are we betraying the planet we have in the space race? And by looking for these other places to live, and I'm sorry, Elon Musk, but I don't think we're going to be able to live out there. So I think it is a kind of fantasy that allows us to kind of feel better about despoiling the one home that we have. So I wanted to kind of call attention to that. It would be really funny if Elon Musk listened to this show and was like, <laughs> oh my God, what? <laughs> oh, shit. Elon, Elon, you have to read this book. You, you really should, actually. Yeah. Well, a lot of the stories actually are from the point of view of animals. Mm -hmm. 
and climate change is a really, really big issue that you tackle, I think, in each of them. But maybe just to start in one place and sort of keep talking about Leica. But why do you go to the point of view or the perspective of animals in so many of these stories? And what does that allow you to do that talking from a perspective of a human might yeah. not? Yeah, that's a great question. Leica was the first one that I wrote because I was sort of inspired by these paintings and it just, you know, came to me. Mm -hmm. But after that, I started to think about other animals that are sort of famous, right, and whose stories are very much about providing a service to science. And in general, I think animals' stories, well, these stories are pointing to the need for us to rethink our relationship to the natural world and to animals. I'm inspired a lot by Latin American literature, and the, there's the tradition of the animal fable, and it's kind of a parallel cast of characters that sort of, you know, sheds light on our own mores and foibles and these kinds of things. But they're generally not told from a kind of interior voice of an animal. So that's what I wanted to try in these stories, precisely because language is the thing that has been used as the dividing marker between humans and animals, right? So what would it be like to give an animal speech? And in fact, even more so in the, in the other two stories, one which is about Coco the signing gorilla, and the other is about Dolly the cloned sheep or Rosie, the sheep that she's cloned from, is the narrator in that story. But they really have the gift of gab, right? So mm -hmm. they're just, they're real talkers. And I thought that was an interesting thing to do because, of course, it anthropomorphizes them, but it also kind of zoomorphizes the reader a little bit. So you're in this in-between state, you know, as long as you can kind of suspend disbelief. And then it's just the question of, you know, what would they be saying to us right now? What is it like to have the conditions of their lives and their very existence depend on human priorities, which have been so skewed for so long and so much about resource extraction and just, you know, using up this planet and then finding another one? Right. I thought a really great part of the Coco story was when Coco says, well, if Earth could talk, you think she wouldn't be cursing right now? <laughs> yeah. You think she, she wouldn't be using a lot of expletives? Right. You know, you that are all really fooling funny. yourselves. Yeah, yeah she has really a real funny. potty mouth. She right. does. <laughs> yeah. She does. yeah, with that story, you know, I appreciate how tightly formed these stories are, that the architecture to me seems like so worked out. Mm. And I wonder, I'm sure it's hard to say what comes first, but mm -hmm. let's say you think, oh, I want to write about Coco, the gorilla, are you then thinking, how can I form the story? Mm -hmm. I mean, where does structure come in? Because these stories are just exquisitely structured. Oh, thank you. So that's a challenging and good question, Kate. I think that I do think I want to write about this, and then I always think, what form should it take? So it's not just I want to tell this story right. as if there's just one form in which all stories are told, right? And with Coco, actually... I wanted it to be about sort of representation or about language, right? That that's so much the question there. And maybe you could explain the form that that story takes. Yeah. So actually what I did is I went to the Gorilla Foundation website, which is devoted to Coco. And she's actually gotten a lot of attention more recently. There was a video of Coco signing about the state of nature for the climate change conference in Paris. And so she started to get like a million hits. So all of a sudden she's had, you know, she's like 40, 
45. You know, mm-hmm. she's been around a while. She's had other moments, you know, in the sun visits from, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio or <laughs> Mr. Rogers. And she had a book called Coco's Kitten, a, a children's oh. book, and that was very popular. But then she kind of sort of went quiet for a while. But then they figured out how to upload videos onto their website. So I went to look at them. But I really was aggravated by them because she's treated like such a child. And I thought it would be interesting to then have her narrate those videos. So the story is told with different kind of entitled sections. But every title is the title actually of a video. I don't know if that's kosher or not, but I just, I just, yeah, I sort of took it. And then she retells the story from her point of view and she calls it her counter narrative. And then she ends up saying that she's going to make a film at the end, right? right? She becomes a filmmaker, which was just taking the language thing one step further. Right. right? And how about a story like Queer Khan, where it's told from two, you have two narrators and kind of across a class divide. And yeah. Did, for instance, with that story, did you know before you started writing it that it would be, that the whole form of the story had to be these two points of view? Yeah, I very much wanted to do that precisely because it's from there is a class chasm there between this wealthy American couple who comes and the woman in the couple is the one who narrates that section. And they come to Coyoacan just as there's a great, you know, environmental disaster. There's a terrible storm. And then there's a housekeeper who's keeping the house for them while the husband shuts down his corporate office. And of course, her experience of the storm and where her children are and whether she's going to get out is completely different from their experience. Not completely different, but obviously they diverge. And the question there was whether I needed to do more to mark the alternating narratives. But in the end, I decided not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to kind of let the reader figure it out. Yeah. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. Hi, my name is Medea Ocher, and I am here with Eric Newman, our gender and sexuality editor at the LRV of Books. And he's going to do a book recommendation for us. Eric, what are you reading right now? So right now, and I'm very much reading it right now. I'm not done. So I'll suspend some judgment, but I'm reading Kyum Yajin's Notes of a Crocodile, and I am loving it. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? So where I am now, it follows this National Taiwanese University student, uh, Ladzi, I think is her name. It's L-A-Z-I. And she is having her first kind of lesbian affair, with, or she's infatuated with another student, Shui Ling. And the descriptions of Ladzi's relationship with this girl just recalls all of those. Like, I think even if you're queer or straight, it recalls that kind of first love that you had where you're deeply obsessed with like all of this person, the rhythms of their daily life, how you encounter them, then also kind of afraid of encountering them because you feel very drawn to this person and that's terrifying in some ways. But I should also say that the style of Q's prose is particularly enlivening, but also like very disarming. It's very difficult to follow. It's kind of looping. It's very gonzo in a way, but it is thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. I've heard about this writer. She was quite young. Yes. Isn't that right? Yeah. And a contemporary writer? 
I believe this is from the 90s. Okay. So it has very much that kind of 90s, <clears throat> like, new internet type of feel. But she obviously passed away. Right. She committed, committed suicide, suicide. Yeah. And is one of the more prominent queer Taiwanese writers that is published currently. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a kind of interesting renewed interest in her work, I think, particularly over, say, like the past five to 10 years, which has been really interesting. It actually, not that this is a double recommendation, but I picked this up because I was so taken by Bei Tong's Beijing Comrade, which is a queer Chinese novel, kind of, I believe, from the same period. And that I read like a 14-year-old girl reading her first romance. It was like the most amazing thing that I have read in a long time. That's how I read every book. Um, I wish I could read every book like that. Thank you, Eric. Will you tell us again the name of the book and the name of the writer? It is Kyu Miao Jin, and the book is called Notes of a Crocodile. And what's the second book you recommended? That book is Beijing Comrade, and it's by Bei Tong. Thank you so much. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Janet Sarbanes, author of The Protester Has Been Released. I thought an interesting connecting point, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but an interesting connecting issue between the stories of Coco and Koya Khan and a lot of these other stories is this question of motherhood that keeps mm-hmm. coming up. So in Coco, one of the things like that you said that you mm-hmm. got really frustrated by was mm-hmm. that they really treat Coco like a child mm-hmm. or like a baby, even though technically you know, she's in her 40s. And there's also this question of will she mate? Mm-hmm. And, and she doesn't want to mate with the brutes that they kind of bring in for her who mm-hmm. can't talk to her at mm-hmm. all, right? She's moved way beyond the average gorilla. But her caretaker has also decided in the end, not to have a child mm-hmm. with her partner. And then Koya Khan is very much about these, also a story of these two mothers, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and the two mothers navigating a very different reality mm-hmm. that, that exists for both of them. Oh, this is a very long question. I've been talking for 20 minutes. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but so what I wanted to ask you was, how do you also think of motherhood in all of these different contexts? I mean, even even the Leica story had a, has a kind of parental relationship, almost right. like God and God and child, but uh, uh, um, master, master, yeah. and yeah. yes, master and dog. But mm-hmm. how do you th- how does motherhood play into these stories that you've put together? I think that's a great question. I mean, I am a mother. I have a seven year old daughter, so I think it probably infuses a lot of what I uh, what I write. But I also think it is about questioning, in a sense, putting forward the value of care, right? And then questioning the ways in which our society allows that value to kind of exist and to have an effect. And I was just thinking about when you brought that up, the the mother of all bombs that was just dropped, yeah. right? Uh-huh. And everybody was talking about that expression. And I do think in general throughout the collection, there is people who care too much or they care, the, the humans sort of care haplessly. They're sort of struggling for the most part. And it's the animals who are wise. The animals 
I mean, motherhood is also a big issue in the Dolly, the the clone totally. sheep, because it, it kind of um, complicates the whole notion of what motherhood is and having control over that and, and being able, being allowed to care or being forced to care in certain ways. And so I do think it fits into this bigger question. Now that you're thinking about it, I'm going through my mind and sort of all the stories have, yeah. have a lot of mothering yeah, in them. I mean, or yeah. who will sit with mama. Right. Yeah. And, Right. Um, ours longer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Family right. dynamic there. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed particularly interesting. I mean, the sort of adjacent question to that that occurred to me is, you know, the book is called The Protester Has Been Released mm-hmm. um, and obviously has political implications. Mm-hmm. But the question that kept coming up to me is, what are political responsibilities to mm-hmm. our children? Right. Mm-hmm. As, aside from the fact that there's this question of care, mm-hmm. what kind of world are we leaving for them? Because mm-hmm. climate change comes up so often, mm-hmm. and these babies are in Koyakon, they're drenched, right? They always mm-hmm. seem wet, they seem mm-hmm. swollen. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, they even imagine them drowned, right? Mm-hmm. But that what is our what is our political responsibility to the children we decide to have mm-hmm. and the children that we even, that we adopt who may be gorillas or right. whatever. And actually in that protester, just been really story, there's that story is very funny and it takes, you know, it's a, it's about a male protester, but mm-hmm. at one point he is in a protest. He doesn't even mean to me and he gets arrested for a second time and he's not able to pick up his daughter at mm-hmm. um, daycare. Yeah. And then, you know, there's this uh, thing about people saying like, oh, don't, don't worry about it. You're a family man now like you don't have to you shouldn't be doing this now basically right Um, right yeah yeah and that's in Koyoakon too the kind of oh uh just you know the the kind of um uh you know her husband says you know don't worry our son's going to be fine she's like I'm not worried about our son I'm worried about the world right right? um but it's the kind of privatization of of parenting and that kind Mm -hmm. of care uh versus you know sort of opening it up as to be something that's more collective Mm -hmm. right is that something that you are concerned about as a mother? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, every time I do explain to my daughter what things that are going on, I, she's just incredulous and she can't wait to grow up to help the animals. She's very into Aww. animal conservation. Yeah. But, you know, Lisa Ann Auerbach, I don't know if you know her. She's an artist, but she has a series of, of prints that she's been doing. And one of them is explain this to children. It's just like that phrase sort of you know in large block letters and i find that to be it it's a real challenge at this moment in time like mm-hmm. well, how do we explain what we're doing to children well and i think yeah. that's you know that's uh, the novella of the book mm-hmm. um has that uh, element as well that i almost thought that there's a relationship between a, the president's daughter so a teenager in the white house mm-hmm. and her being so I guess she's not exactly the narrator, but she's the the, her, the heroine of the story right. and and the animals. I mean, someone who's such a who's kind of such an outside perspective, mm-hmm. um, who can really flip the situation and and come and uh, being approaching the you know politics in a almost w- what seems like almost a bizarre way, but is really just a really em- empathetic, right. questioning, real you know struggling way. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that the surreal aspect of many of these stories is really what makes many of these political realities visible. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, something like climate change, which mm-hmm. remains, I think, for the most part, especially for people who don't want to see it, you know, if you don't want to see it, you don't have to necessarily, makes it actually there, right? And you have to, these characters have to confront it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the reader, you sort of have to confront it. Yeah. So it feels like a powerful 
tool in that sense, right? Rather than potentially the realistic sort of depiction. Yeah, and I I do think that climate change is the most terrifying thing. And totally. so we don't yeah. tend to, we tend to block it out precisely because it's something that we can't fix entirely by human means. So everything we do is, you know, contributing to our own demise, uh, especially now that we're, you know, we're really, really walking backwards mm-hmm. very quickly on, on climate change. And so, yeah, this extreme weather, but there's sort of absurd elements to it. There's this couple on a beach of Lake Michigan trying to create uh a big a monument so um, rich people will come in on their yachts and pick them up and take them away after some, I don't even know what the terrible climactic event is in that, but it leaves a bunch of ash and um, and and they lose their children to a terrible a terrible super bug, but it does kind of it, it crystallizes it in in certain ways. Whereas I don't know, it's a it's a way to kind of keep the fear in abeyance. But at the end, you're really dealing with it. I mm-hmm. feel like for the duration of the story, but eventually it, it comes in again. But it's not paralyzing, or it's not something that just makes you want to put it down. Hopefully. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, it's intriguing and, and chilling all at once. And, 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 and also the stories are very funny, you know, the mm-hmm. dark, very satirical, and there's a yeah. real dark humor at play. So you can kind of handle the other aspects, which are very scary. Scary. <laughs> they really yeah. are scary. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. I wanted to maybe, maybe just one or two more questions, but um, ask you, you know, right now, especially, it's like, the headlines of the paper seem sometimes like they are plucked from the onion. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, there's a, it seems somehow that we've descended into an more unbelievable political state um, in the last few months than, than ever before in in my lifetime. So how do you calibrate that? I mean, are, are you incredibly inspired right now? Is how, how do you, with so much going on, so much possibility for for almost for satire in, in the present moment, how are you handling it? Yeah. In your work? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it's 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 interesting, you know, when election night happened, which was just so traumatic and just a, a kind of gaslighting, I guess. It was just like a reality that I hadn't imagined or hadn't allowed myself to imagine, although my dad and my brother were like, he's good at what he does, you wow. know, and he could, he could win. But it just seemed, I just thought, you know, people are gonna, they've seen through this and it mostly it was the the kind of authoritarian, the kind of that side of things, the kind of um, strong man that I just thought, you know, we're we're not going to go for that, right? This is a democracy. <laughs> there goes liberal democratic kind of um, illusions. But I had this also weirdly because this book was coming out in the back of my mind. I was like, this is going to change things in terms of how art enters the world. Mm-hmm. And and all of my, I have a few friends who have books coming out too. And they were all like, this is completely different. I've never experienced that before. Such a shift in terms of what, of legibility, right? Mm-hmm. And also this sense of just being lost. I mean, I was glad it was a short story collection because I think in a collection you can kind of, you don't have to have the overall solution or the truth, right? right. You can dip into lives. It's a kind of sneaky way to do it where you end up with a pretty good kind of cross section maybe in a book where you're trying to be in touch with a political moment, but you don't have to, nobody's going to say, well, you know, what should we do now by reading right. the, the stories? But I have found it very hard to write now. It's getting better. <laughs> <laughs> good, Maybe good. It, it was just the shock. But I also think 
turning to this sort of Latin American tradition has been very helpful because they're writing about things like authoritarianism. They're writing about dictatorships, which were not quite there yet, but you can see some of these same things sort of coming into view. And particularly the fable form I've been attracted to, just writing very, very short fables, because I feel like we are so adrift in terms of the kind of values that are being put forward. Right. And that literature or writing can put forward other values. But still, you know, in the Latin American tradition, so the fable is very prominent, but there's a lot of humor because there's a lot to make fun of. There's a lot of idiocy, right? right? There's a lot of horror, but there's a lot of idiocy as well. And particularly, there's a real need for irreverence, I think, because of this sort of notion that we're not supposed to protest because the election is over right. or, you know, right. these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. What's your protesting life like right now? <laughs> well, I've made an effort to strike, right? So, There was the women's strike, and there is May Day labor and immigration strike. And the reason I think that's important is because it disrupts sort of business as usual, more so than a Saturday march. And there was an interesting article in Jacobin, which was this whole history I wasn't aware of, that up until the Vietnam War protests, marches were always held on weekdays. Like the March on Washington was on a Wednesday. Wow. And it came from this tradition of have the maximum impact, right? Really disrupt. It does something to not go to work when you're supposed to, right? And so that's been something that I've sort of made an effort to do. And then I've gone to a bunch of the Saturday protests as well, partially because I think it's good to be with other people who are saying no. And the bigger the no the stronger you are. So I always sort of try to do that. Well, Janet, thank you so much for being here today and speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Janet Sarbanes and her new book is The Protester Has Been Released, out now from CNR Press. been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 